Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is July the 14th, 2016. This is episode 1827 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a great one for you today because it's all about you. And this one has a lot about guns in it. Why does today's listener call show have three questions that you know refer, uh, refer to guns in it? Because that's what you asked. I, I keep telling you guys, if you want to hear certain things on the show, pick up the phone, dial 866-65-THINK, ask your question or make your point up front, and do it quickly and succinctly, then give me your details on that. Give me your details quickly and succinctly. You get two minutes to make the call. If I'm a minute into the call, and I don't mean to pick on it, but if I'm a minute into the call and I still don't have the gist of what you're saying, I'm sorry, that call gets knocked out of the running for that week. So succinct to the point, and then you have a good chance of getting on the air call from a quiet location. Today, here's the questions we have. Uh, a caller calls in and says, hey, I want to be able to sell my gun uh, privately. And I want to know how much it's worth. And I used to sell guns on things like, you know, Facebook through groups. I said, I got a gun for sale. Somebody locally would say, I want it. We'd meet. Now what do I do? Because Facebook doesn't allow that anymore. Um, I have some thoughts on that. And should you even care if it's sold privately? I, I don't think you should. I really don't think you should. If you have the opportunity to do that, great. But don't limit yourself. Uh, I also have a question. What would be the consequences of government fully taking over health care? As, as many of you know, I've forecasted. In 2008, actually 2009, that not only would the Affordable Care Act pass, that it would be a complete disaster, it would destroy uh, modern health insurance, as bad as it was, it would make it immensely unaffordable and worse, and that people would be ready for government health care by the time the next president came around. And I even said then, we'll have two years of this ask on Obama. It's going to be, you know, after 2016, we're going to have full-on government health care. One way or another, and it'll probably be a Republican and be able to get it done in a way that no Democrat ever could. Well, the question is, well, if that happens, what are the consequences? We'll talk about that today. Um, we had a person call in about choosing an engineering degree. You know, basically, I think it was mechanical, uh, chemical, no, it was mechanical, electronic, or something else. And, you know, looking at automation in the future, which one would be best? Had a lot of people give feedback to consider other options rather than engineering school like mechanical trades. And I got a caller today that specifically did that and his experience and why that might be a viable option for many of you young folks that are thinking in that direction. But cost, expense, employability, you might want to hear what this guy has to say. I also have a question, another gun question, two in a row here. The, a question about the relationship between muzzle velocity and barrel length. So you get ballistics information for a specific barrel length, and then your gun has a different barrel length. So how do you reconcile all that? Is it really a big, hairy deal or not? Next up, uh, another gun question. I talked about a gun that's on my now, my wish list, called the Ruger 77-357. This is a bolt-action 357 Magnum rifle. only weighs about 5.5 pounds. Uh, it's a beautiful little gun, and I talked about using it as an all-around rifle. I have a question about expanding on that concept and some other stuff we'll talk about. And I have a caller who quotes a, I don't remember who it is now, but somebody uh, from either a gun show or something like that that says, uh, it's not the 4th of July, it's Independence Day. I said that myself about a week ago, but we're going to expand on that, and we're going to close with a song that makes us wonder if there is any such thing as an Independence Day in our modern age. 
should we fail in the very near future to stand up and reclaim it? And really, is it that much different than it was all the way back in 1969? When you hear the words of this song, you might realize it's pretty much the same. It's just continued to get worse. And I'll give you a little hint about the song. Monsters do always grow over time. With that, before we get to these calls today from you guys, let's go ahead and uh, take a look at the year that was the episode. I have time for the first U.S. passenger railroad. I have the Democratic Party begins. And I have the Book of Mormon and the Golden Plates. And in other news, sulfur matches are patented. A sulfur-tipped stick is dipped into a bottle of phosphorus and will burst into flame when you pull it out of the bottle. The first fountain pen is patented in France. And Zarfa, the giraffe, comes to France. This will be the first giraffe in Europe for three centuries, a gift from the Sultan of Egypt to the King of France. I'm going to read the first U.S. passenger railroad. The Erie Canal has caused the port of New York's cargo traffic to increase dramatically. That is why Maryland has approved a charter for Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, the B&O, in hope of increasing cargo traffic through the port of Baltimore. At first, the Baltimore and Ohio will not go anywhere near Ohio, just as the majority of Erie Canal's business is moving cargo short distances. The initial routes of the B&O are within Maryland and Virginia. The first granite stringers, cross members on the track, will be laid next year. And that may explain why the first train station will be located at Elliott Mills, where the granite quarry exists. The line will then pass over the Potomac and head to the Cumberland Gap and keep going all the way to the Ohio River. I'm making it sound easy, but it will not be easy at all. The B&O will be the first common carrier cargo and revenue-producing passenger train in the United States. The company will print its own train schedule. Imagine that. And it will use a locomotive built in the United States, the Tom Thumb. <laughs> not the grocery store, right? My take by Alex Shrug. It may not seem like much, but a railroad can run cargo and passengers during the wintertime when the canals are frozen over. As the trains' routes expand, that will make a big difference and eventually overwhelm the cargo canal system. However, as wonderful as railroads are, they created a problem that remains the daily curse of the modern man. Synchronization clocks and time zones. In a slow-moving train over short distances, synchronizing one's watch to the local time seems trivial. But over the long distance, hundreds of miles east and west will become a problem. The train schedule says 3 p.m. arrival time. Is that Baltimore time or local? It makes a difference if one is traveling east to west and back. For example, sunrise in Houston today is 6.31 a.m. In Austin, it's eight minutes later. If I'm driving to Houston, it makes little difference if I'm t my timing is off by eight minutes. But if I'm on a train, it makes a big difference if the train ahead of mine hasn't left the station yet. My train can't simply shoulder the other train aside. By 1840, England has instituted railroad time and synchronized railroad state railway stations. This is why you see those big clocks at the train station. That makes sense. Daylight savings time makes less sense. Don't get me started. Um, yes, uh, an Indian saying is only a white man would cut the bottom off a blanket, sew it to the top of the blanket, and think he gets a longer blanket. That's daylight savings time. Um, my reason for choosing this, though, is this is the dawn of the age of expansion throughout the country. Once railroads expand to the West, the country can really expand to the West. The westward expansion by 1827 is on. And there's a lot of people that are going just because they're tired of the buildup of people, the imbecile thing, right? You know, government and imbeciles. And you can just go a little bit West at this time and uh, no one gives a shit what you do and you can be left the hell alone. But... Getting stuff is a problem. The further the railroads move, then you have a town. 
and a railroad goes through the town, and then you can have stores and supplies and stuff like that. And then you can just move a little bit away from that and still be the West, and this is what opens up the country for true settlement. The covered wagons aren't even going yet, but when the railroads really reach their potential, they become the lifeline of supplies, people, cargo, and materials that transform this giant piece of land into actually a nation that will be settled for both good and bad. And that will even be in today's song. And some of you are going, I know what this song is. But the rest of you will have to wait to find out what it is unless you look at the show notes because it's always there so you can see the video. Anyway, with that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, if you're like me, you want the best quality water for yourself and your family. This is why I've used a Berkey water filter for over six years in my own home. But if you're going to get a Berkey or parts for one you already have, you should deal with the best. And that's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. There's only one official Berkey Guy, and you can only find him at his website at directive21.com. Again, directive, the number is 21 and a dot com. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a favorite knife, a special knife, one you may hand down to a son or a daughter? How cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself? With KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at KnifeKits.com. And from there, we go ahead and uh, take our first call. Hello, Jack. My question is about private gun sales. My name is Dean. I'm calling from Idaho and I have a youth model deer rifle that I wanted to sell. I used to belong to several uh, gun owner slash sales groups on Facebook, but since Facebook has eliminated all of these groups, I'm wondering if you would recommend a good way to sell a gun, get a, a reasonable price for it, and also if you have any information on the best way to value used guns. Uh, thank you for your show. I appreciate it. I've learned a lot and uh, changed the way I think about a lot of things in the world. Have a great day. Bye. Um, so this is a couple of things that I'll say. First of all, on determining value. Uh, books don't determine value, and there are like the Blue Book of Gun Values and the Gun Digest Book of Gun Values, and they're they're okay starting points, and you spend money to get those so you can get information that will be outdated you know, next year. Uh, because a gun has a certain, you know, your older guns that are just, you know, not special, those values are pretty constant. I mean, if you look at what a, you know, let's say a, a Winchester Model 120 pump shotgun, you know, sell for about $200 uh, 10 years ago, still sells for about $200 in good shape today. It's like the, 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 the you know, the, 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 uh, the, 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 the child of the Model 12. And they were made from the 80s all the way through up into the 90s. And because it's just a, a it was always a mid-price gun, a, a lower-price point gun, it doesn't change much. But a lot of guns, like, you know, if a new model comes out, they might go down in value. Or if they change the model and the market doesn't like it, they could go up. But in general, they hold, oh, yeah, they're okay. But the way you determine what the value of a gun is, is you look for what it's selling for on average on the market. What are, not what people are asking for, what are they paying for it? So I would say go to Gunbroker and find your gun on Gunbroker and likely that gun's there and, and watch those auctions and see if they sell and what they sell for. And if they don't sell, the seller's probably asking more money than they're going for right now. 
Another option is go to a few gun stores and see if they have your gun in stock as a used gun. Find larger used gun sales. See what they're selling them for. You know, and go in and, and pretend you're interested in buying it and say, would you make a deal on this? And if they're like, if they cut 50 bucks off the price of it like that, you know they're overpriced and it's been sitting there a long time. So it all comes down to what the market will do. And I think looking at the market is the best indicator of the, and then there's also, well, what are you willing to take for it? You know, if I walked up to you right now and said, I'll give you 300 bucks for it, would you be like, here's your gun, man, buy, go away? Or would you be like, I don't know? So you have to balance those two because sometimes, yeah, maybe the gun is, is, is routinely selling for 300 bucks on the market right now, but those sales are taking, they're, they're few and far between when they're happening. So you might find four of them on GunBroker and one might sell this month for 300 bucks. But that gun might sell really quick for $250. So if you'd rather have the $250 now than $300 60 days from now, then you may adjust your price. See, this is a market-based activity. Now, probably the best place to, to, to see if someone will buy your gun because it costs you nothing is GunBroker. I think a lot of people think that you have to be a dealer to sell on GunBroker. You don't have to be a dealer to sell on GunBroker. It's up to the buyer to provide you with an FFL dealer to ship to. So you can sell on GunBroker and say FFL required, and then either an FFL themselves might be interested in buying it, or you know Joe Blow, seven states away, says bids on it, and people that use GunBroker understand how this works, and you know they provide their FFL dealer's location, they make payment, you ship to there, and it's good and good. I know that's not private, but why do you really care? If you're selling a legal firearm, the whole point of private sales is not so that you can make all your sales private, all right? The whole point of private sales is that should the opportunity be there, you're not impeded. It would be like saying, well, I don't believe the government should tax us for roads, so I'm going to drive my car only on property I own. I'm not going to use the roads that are there. Don't, don't refuse to use the system that's there. there. There's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, you can always shop it out to a few pawn shops, see if any of them are interested in it, though, in general, pawn shops and gun shops generally lowball you. But you, you can always take that approach as well. Gun shows are great, though. You know the gun show loophole? There is no such thing as a gun show loophole. The, the reality is, in most states, I don't know about your states, so you got to take your own state law into account here. In most states, a sale of a firearm between two private individuals is completely legal and requires no paperwork. But both, like in Texas, both of those parties must be Texas residents. That's, that's kind of important to know, right? So if you go to a gun, sh uh, a gun show, a lot of times they'll have, like, here, I, I can't tell you what they do in your state. In Texas, it works like this. I want to bring a gun into a gun show. I get in line at the gun show to come in. I get in a different line than the people that are just going in. There's some police officers sitting there. They're not big, scary police officers. They're just doing their job. They're paid. They're actually off the police clock and on the gun show clock uh, being paid privately to do their job. They inspect your gun, they make sure it's not loaded, and then they make it so it cannot fire. And they don't hurt it, they use something like a tie wrap and they put it on it. And then you can walk around with that gun in the gun show and offer to sell it to dealers, uh, or to trade it with dealers, or to trade it for partial credit on a gun. So you have a gun, dealers will only give me 200 bucks on it, I want to buy this $400 gun, I give the gun to 200 bucks, boom, we have our deal. And by the way, there will be the... Uh, Background check done, insta check run by any licensed dealer at a gun show. Only private sellers are exempt from that, just like they are whether they're a gun show or not. But this is what I found. 
A lot of times, just walking around a gun show, carrying a gun, if there's somebody that's been looking for something and they see you with it, do you want to sell that? Sure. And I've had guys, like, I sold a gun one time at a gun show to guys like, well, I have to ask you this before I buy it. Are you a cop? I said, are you stupid? And he looked at me like I was crazy. I said, are you stupid? He goes, what? I'm like, well, first of all, if it was illegal to sell this gun to you, I wouldn't sell it to you. Second of all, if I was a cop, it doesn't freaking matter. A cop put a freaking band on this thing on the way in, and you're too stupid for me to sell my gun to. So I didn't end up actually selling him the gun because I don't believe selling guns to stupid people. That's my choice, right? But I could have sold that gun to stupid, but I chose not to. I ended up selling it to somebody else and using that money to buy something I was looking for, which at the time was a Caltech Sub 2K. So gun shows are a great place to do that because there's a lot of people looking for guns there, and private sales are legal, and you also can involve an FFL if needed or if you want to. So those are the ways I would look at that, and gun shows are a great place to see gun values as well. What are dealers asking for the gun? And this is another way you really start to learn about gun values in especially used firearms. If you see a gun at a gun show that you own, whether you want to sell it or not, pick it up and look at it, right? Unless you have one of those tables with the assholes like, don't touch the guns, then look at it very closely like you're very, very interested. And soon the person that's there to sell guns will say to you, are you interested in that? And you go, I don't know. You got any leeway on it? And they'll usually give you their bottom line price at a gun show like that fast. Or they'll say, no, we, we, we hold firm on that. And then make a mental note or a note in your phone of what that gun was selling for and what that guy was willing to sell it for. And you now have a real market value of that gun. These are just ways that I've always approached this. When I'm at a gun show, if I see something I own, I at least pay attention to the price. A lot of times I'll make a note in my phone, and just making a note in my phone will make the owner come over and ask me if I'm interested in it. And a lot of times I don't want to waste their time if I'm not going to buy it, but I will say, do you got any leeway on that, or do you got any movement on that? Can you can you do any better than that price? I'm shopping around. Because they'll spit out a price that fast, and I haven't wasted their time. I haven't cost them a deal, with, and I'll go, well, okay, thanks a lot, and I'll walk away. And, and sometimes they're like, you can tell them trying to, like, come on, you know, let's do something, because I'm not going to buy it. And I don't, I, don't, I don't want them trying to sell to me because they're a business person and they want to make money. I don't want them pushing toward me and some other guy sitting there ready to buy. And it's like, screw it, I'm going to walk to another table and buy just because it's a, you know, it's a brand new. This guy's going to buy a Glock 19 or a Glock 17 or a, you know, something like that. Twenty tables have them laying there, brand new. So if he doesn't get talked to and the guy across the, the, the aisle has the gun for the same price and he's available, he's going to go there and buy it. So I don't want to cost anybody business in this. But I'll ask that question. If they're not busy, I might even say, I, I've got one, and I'm just wondering what they're selling for. And that's actually happened where with, like, a 410. I love little 410 pump guns, and that happened, and the guy's like, well, yeah, I, I'd come down to, like, I don't remember what it was, like 175 bucks on this gun. Really? He's like, yeah. I'm like, I could have two of them. So I bought it. I threw it over my shoulder. I'm walking around, and, like, people started chasing me because it was a 410 pump, and nobody ever sees them. And uh, I sold it for $235 about 10 minutes after I bought it for $175. So it's uh, there's a lot of opportunity at gun shows. It's not a loophole. It's the legal system as it is. Private sales are legal. Hope that helps everybody. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Daniel here. Um, I've heard you say a few times on your show um, that uh, you believe that there will be a government takeover of the healthcare system. 
in uh, the near future, or at least potentially with the next president. Um, I think you've hinted at it a few times. You've explicitly said it, but you haven't really gone into the details of what that might actually mean. Um, and so I was curious what it would mean for, um, you know, your everyday person who's getting health care. What would it mean for the insurance companies? I just don't understand um, what that means and if that would have an impact um, on the audience of your show in terms of if there would be any uh, link to preparedness. Thank you. Love your show. Bye. Well, let's look at two different ways this can actually happen and really be a full takeover of government health care. It is, it is likely that you're going to have either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump as president. I don't know, maybe the aliens will save us from that or something, but in, in all likelihood, that's what you're going to have. If you get Hillary Clinton, you get a huge push for a single-payer system. And I think if she wins, there's going to have to be some eruption in the, in, the, in, the, in the marketplace, so to speak, the voting place, so to speak. I don't think she's going to win right now. If everything stays the way it is, I think her electability will only decline and Trump's will only go up. The, 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 the thing that can change that is some huge scandal on Trump's side uh, because it will hit him much harder than all of the scandals have hit her. Uh, or he keeps saying stupid shit, right? If they get him speaking uh, with, with formulated talking points, he sticks to the plan, he gets elected. So, But either way, I mean... What are the odds he'll say a bunch of stupid shit between now and, like, tomorrow? Pretty high, so who knows? So if you get Hillary, your government takeover of health care looks like what you expect it to. It looks like a single-payer system, meaning you pay the government, the government pays the provider. And they may make some quasi-fascist uh, system with uh, private insurers being in a pool, So it would work like, well, your coverage is through Blue Cross, but Blue Cross uh, is in this pool, and you actually pay the government, not Blue Cross. You pay the government, and it, this is being done and has been done a long time ago with things like to help young people get auto insurance in some states where it's just insane. So the state just basically set a rate, told all the insurance companies, you will insure these people for this rate until such time as they get in a wreck or kill somebody or something like that. Pennsylvania did this when I was 16. It's how I ended up with State Farm, and I've kept State Farm insurance since I was 16 years old now. So the state had a program. It wasn't quite like I'm talking about, but basically you, 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 you were in that program, and then you drew an insurer, and then the business between you and them. But the state set the rates So you cannot charge them more than this until they give you a reason to. Because they were charging 16-year-old kids in 1986 like $1,500 a year for liability insurance on a $400 car. And it was just insane. So the, the state stepped in and, and railed that back in. And do I think the state should be doing that? There's a lot of things I don't think the state should be doing. I'm telling you what they did, okay? And uh, I drew State Farm out of the pool, and I've kept them ever since. Great company. So I think what you might get is more along the lines of it's just a tax, a health care tax. And then you get assigned to Blue Cross or Aetna or whatever, and you'd have probably a lot less of them. Uh, some of them would definitely go out of business. Uh, some of them would merge, and they'd be on a fixed schedule. And the government would tell them what to do. Okay, So that's one way this can work. The other way this could work is a lot more like what I just described with Pennsylvania, that every person 
will be set. Basically, what the government will say is this is what health insurance is. This is what it's going to cost. This is a rate table. This is how you charge more for older people, but you can't discriminate because somebody has an illness, a sickness, whatever. Um, and this is it. And if you don't like it, get out of the business. That might be closer to what Trump would do, and it might even be the case that, like, as a taxpayer, you're just assigned an insurance company. Now, now Trump's talked about things like opening up competition across state borders and stuff. You know, Trump's talking points are all the things right-wing radio people said they wanted for the last friggin' 15 years. They really are, and it's 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 funny that they don't get that he's telling them what they want to hear. But anyway. Um, but I, I don't I don't know that you'll get that either. I, you might get a single payer system from Trump. It's not like he doesn't ever change his mind or anything, and it might get a different marketing thing and message. So I think it's the most likely one way or another. Your money goes to the government. The government then pays the bills, and you don't pay doctors anymore at all. That type of a thing, uh, or there is some kind of copay or something. But you, your 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 billing is to the government, and the government pays the provider. Single payer. Um, the ramifications of that, a overtaxed bad system gets worse. That's it. I mean, longer waits for surgeries, longer waits for treatment, longer waits to see your doctor. Um, here's the thing, though. Would it be much worse than what we have now? I, I don't know that it would. And some people still are living in 2000 in their head 16 years ago. And saying, oh, it'll destroy everything. And if, if you don't, you're a person like me that doesn't go to the doctor a lot or something like that, it's easy to do because you're, you're thinking to yourself, oh, you know, the way that it is, but you don't really know the way that it is. My wife needed to go to the doctor uh, a couple months ago and it wasn't an emergency and it was taking her like, like 10 days to get in for like, you know, something sort of routine, but something you should kind of see somebody, like 10 days from now, I might not even give a shit anymore if it goes away, that type of a thing. And, in, in fact, that it did. So you end up canceling the appointment. That didn't used to be the way things were. And some of you may live in small towns with less tax systems. And I don't mean income tax. I mean tax, like stress on the system. And, and you may not think it's that way. But it is in a lot of places already. And the doctors are already billing for the purpose of billing. Uh, for instance, uh, my wife had a, a, a year ago, due, just due to her age and standard screening, a colonoscopy. And, uh, of course, the, after it was done, the doctor said he wanted her to come back in again to meet with him and go over the results. And she said, uh, unless there's something to be concerned about, just give me the results over the phone. They basically said, we don't do that. And my wife said, I paid for this. These are my results. Give me my results. A little bit calmer than I did. Pretty much that was her message. And was told no. So she tried to, instead of doing what I did, which had been like, I'm coming down there, you're giving me my freaking results, or we're going to have a problem. That's what I would have done. I paid for it. It's mine. You give it to me. I'm going to transfer to another doctor. I'm going to pick my doctor. So piss off. Give me my results I paid for. My wife said, I don't have insurance that covers this stuff. I'm way away from my deductible, and I don't have any more money. I cannot afford to do this. It's a lie, but what resulted in, hold on, an immediate disclosure, there was basically nothing. 
all he wanted her to do was come in so he could walk backwards into a room, check a box and say you're good and walk back out and bill 200 bucks so he could get probably 50 bucks to 70 bucks from the insurance company. They're booking appointments just to bill. That will get worse. So all the prop, here's all you do. Look at how shitty everything has gotten in the last 16 years and double it. That's what you'll get, but it will, in one way or another, cost you less money. You'll get a lower quality of care for a lower price point, and it will be likely that you will not have the option to pay more to get better. That's that's what the consequences are. Are we going to have death panels? No, for God's sakes. This is why this shit passed, okay? You people that go nutbag on stuff. They'd have death squads and kill grandma. And, and you know what? The people in the middle that can actually sway votes go, these people are freaking stupid. So their side must be wrong. Yeah. That's what happens. And it was all by design. It was all a setup. And I'm telling you, I don't care if it's Clinton. I don't care if it's, it's Trump. The next person is going to take us either all the way there or closer. And if it's Trump, he'll take you closer or maybe even all the way there with mysterious background bullshit and convince you that's not what it is. And that's why I think it's the most likely scenario. Because it'll give the other side what they want and give the right the message it needs to let it happen. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Raven Wyman out of Bourbon, Nebraska. For the kid that called in last week about uh, going to school for engineering, um, I actually had a full ride to go to school for engineering at uh, UNL and decided to go to a trade school instead for uh, an electrical mechanical degree. And um, when I got out of college, I uh, went to a couple of job fairs and had over 90 opportunities right out of the gate. Um, a lot of trade schools for electrical mechanical degrees not only teach you about PLCs, robotics, and the normal, like, uh, residential wiring, but uh, they also throw in machining and welding and a whole bunch of other skill sets that really widen your opportunities after school. Since school, I've been a PLC tech, I've done engineering, I've done drafting, and everything. And a lot of trade schools will teach you really well on how to do a lot of the different fields that you'd be looking into going into. Um, thank you. Love the show, man. Hope you can pass this on to him. You know, I, I don't have a ton to add to this one because it's what you call out of my wheelhouse, right? I'm not an engineer. I, I have mechanic skills, but not mechanical skills, right? Those are two different things. Right? I know how to work on cars, uh, but like the type of level of workload we're talking here and integrating computer programming to it all, that's not what I do, you know? I think my engineering is limited to building a chicken tractor or something like that. Um, but I like what I hear in this, it seems like the cost would be less and the practical applicable skills would be greater. And I think that employers in the future are wanting people that can walk in the door and be up and running in two weeks. You know, we introduce you to your team, you get comfortable, 
you learn procedures and systems for the company so that you don't do things you're not supposed to do. You learn who to report to, when to take a break, when you're allowed to take a piss and how. And by the time you've learned all that, the other stuff should have flowed naturally, and you should just be on a team working. And a lot of people that come out of engineering school, they can't do that. It's not that they're not extremely smart. It's not that they don't have enormous potential within that field, but they generally don't have as much practical hands-on experience with the things that are actually being done. And they need a little bit more uh, real-world, on-the-job training to come into more of the white-collar level. Now, I'm going to get hate mail from engineers who say, I'm hands-on, I do... And yes, I, I understand that. I understand that. But the reality is you can't know what the education would have been like in sort of an electromechanical, technical approach because you didn't have it. But it might be interesting if you look around and see some of your contemporaries that you think probably just because they are where they are and have said degrees and talk to them and find out. You might be like, man, this guy's really great. And when you find out what his background is, he might have more of this type of a background. You, you just don't know. Because we all become elitist in our things that we're successful with. And it's very important that we broaden ourselves beyond that. Because I'm going to put it to you this way, right? Most of you know I never went to college. I lectured at some colleges. I actually, I actually lectured uh, once at Princeton University. Um, and I actually uh, did a, a talk. It wasn't really a lecture. It was more of a talk at MIT. But I've actually never been to college. Had I gone to college and then taken the exact, probably wouldn't have, but let's say I took the exact career path that I did now and had succeeded as I've succeeded now, doing a podcast every day where I don't really use that degree, uh, I may have justified that degree and said, you know, I probably wouldn't be here without it. And I, what I can say is if I had one, I probably wouldn't be here, but I, I don't know that I might not be doing better or worse. I don't know. I think if I had a degree, I'd probably still have a job. I'd probably still have a job. I'd probably go to a totally different career path, and I'd probably be an employee today. And I think that I might be happy, but I think I would be worse off for it. And I think that all the work we've done with TSP would have never happened. But that doesn't mean it would have been wrong. I think we all have a path. And when I'm hard on education, I think people, again, always want to lump it into like being hard on all education, upper and lower education, all of it. No, I'm, I'm opposed to the concept every child go to college i think that is the most asinine ridiculous thing and our society is made up of idiots and we can tell that we're idiots because the majority of us have bought into that you have to be an idiot to believe that's good advice you really do because you have to look at all the shit all the other things that are important, that are noble, and that are fulfilling, that don't require a degree, and realize if everybody goes and is successful and goes into the things the college prepares you for, there's no one to do that shit, okay? Or all the people that go to college and spend all that money have pissed it away and eventually end up doing that stuff and find fulfillment and success, and they would have been better off taking a different path to get there. Only an idiot can look at that claim, everybody goes to college and is a good thing, and not realize those two fatal flaws in it. So we are a society of morons. We really are. The good news is, most of our moronism in this country is indeed ignorance. 
We've been trained to believe, and therefore we lack knowledge, and therefore we have ignorance of a subject. Ignorance is curable. Stupidity is terminal. Unfortunately, there's a lot of those out there, too. But they're not the majority yet. We haven't been bred down that level yet. With that, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. I had a question. Is there a way to estimate muzzle velocity for a rifle of a um, barrel length that is different than what manufacturers publish? Um, you recently asked for gun questions. I've kind of had this for a while. Um, but I recently purchased a Marlin 1895 chambered in 4570 with an 18.5-inch barrel. Um, I'm trying to build a trajectory table to list bullet drop at different ranges. And uh, I go to the manufacturer's website like Hornady, and it'll say, you know, a, has a muzzle velocity of 2,000 feet per second out of a 24-inch barrel. But I'd like to adjust that for an 18.5-inch barrel to give me a better estimation of, of a bullet drop. So I didn't know um, if there's a way of doing that. You know, if this was my 308, I don't think it would be a big deal. But, you know, 4570's got a pretty big arch to the trajectory. So um, thanks for your help. Uh, let me know if uh, you have any suggestions, and I will... Uh, be listening for your answer. Thanks. So I'm going to start out with a disclosure. In my hands right now are some ballistics calculator um, uh, tables for the next question, not this one. And I disclose that because I'm going to say some things that you're going to, that I'm basically saying it doesn't really matter. It's not a big deal. And then I'm going to use ballistics tables to make my point in the next question. It will make sense when you hear it all together. But I want to disclose that up front. So. Well, as we get through this, you'll understand this. Okay, so here's the basic rule. Now, it's not 100%. But if you look at enough research that's been done where they basically take like a 26-inch barrel gun and shoot it and do chronograph, and then they do the horrible thing. They take a hacksaw and actually cut guns down all the way to 16 inches. And some of the places they've done it all the way down to like 7, right? It's made an illegal gun. Yeah, yeah, government, go away. Anyway, they destroy it afterwards, I guess, uh, to, to deal with this. But from 16 inches up to 26 inches, it's about 10 feet per second per inch. So you would adjust your muzzle velocity in your question roughly 22 down to 18, 40, 40 feet per second less. And it's going to be close. And 40 feet per second is in, within the margin of error. Because you could get ammo that says 2,800 feet per second for a 3006, and in one climate environment gun, it might actually be a little bit faster or a little bit slower. 40 feet per second is what you would call academic. It matters on paper. It doesn't matter in the field. It's irrelevant. Because all ballistics tables do is let you check your sanity of what you believe about a cartridge with knowledge of things like the, the weight, the muzzle velocity, and what's called ballistic coefficient, which we'll get into in just a second, uh, with what is likely. And then likely only becomes reality when you take your gun out to a place where you can see far enough to shoot that far and shoot it and see what really happens. So your, your table, your drop table and stuff like that, a lot of times it doesn't survive a, a check with reality. Uh, so you find that you're actually getting more muzzle velocity, less muzzle velocity, whatever, uh, and, and things change. Ballistics get gray really fast. Okay, now the next thing. The, the primary limiting factor to the 4570 is not its relatively modest muzzle velocity. It's that its ballistic coefficient 
is very low. What's a ballistic coefficient? Um, a ballistic coefficient is a, basically a rating of an object's ability to fly. So if I had a basketball and a football, which one do you think would have a higher versus a lower ballistic coefficient? If they, if they were weighed exactly the same, uh, they were made for the same material, they were a magic basketball and football that were made to be the same density, have the same amount of air, that would change the size of them, but you got one that's shaped like a football and one that's shaped round. Well, the football would have a, a higher ballistic coefficient. Now, if we made that football really long like a javelin, but the same weight and same material, its ballistic coefficient goes up even more. If we put stabilizing fins on it. And what if we take the basketball and we turn it into a cube? Or what if we push it flat like a big giant coin? And instead of throwing like a frisbee, you throw it against itself. Right? This is ballistic coefficient. I'm simplifying it, but it's enough for you to understand it. So, a 45 caliber bullet of the kind that you'll load into a 45-70 has a relatively modest ballistic coefficient as well as a modest velocity. So much so that in 45-70 you have three classes of loads. What they would call all gun, which means they're safe from everything from your trapdoor Springfield all the way up to your Ruger number one. Modern gun, which there's not a lot for sale from factory makers because they don't want to risk you putting it in an old trapdoor Springfield. So mostly those are to be reloaded by hand. But there are companies that specifically make them and you're, you know, like Buffalo Bore or what have you. And then there's what you would call Ruger number one loads. And Siamese Mauser they're approved for as well. With those, you can load a 4570 up to like within 300 feet per second of a 458 Win Mag. But go to Hornady's Ballistic Calculator. I'll have a link in the show notes today and look up, um, the information for the lowest 4570 and the highest in the same bullet weight for, you know, 405 grain and get the ballistic coefficient for that. And uh, plug it in and look at the drop table. They'll be within a couple inches of each other if you have 100 yards zero out to 200 yards. It's, it, it's academic. And, and 40 feet per second is way, way, way less than that variance. Because your primary limitation, unless you can get to really, really high velocities, is your ballistic coefficient. So it's just not that important. Don't worry about it. Get out and shoot the gun. That's how you're going to determine this. But if you want to, for your starting point, a rule of thumb, 10 feet per second, up or down, from the specified results per inch, once the length of the barrel exceeds 16 inches. As you go below 16 inches, this uh, loss accelerates. Because more of the powder is unburned. It's not just time of the, the slug in the, in the barrel. And as you go past 26 inches, it starts to lose its ability to do better. It's right between 16 and 28, you've kind of gotten to that optimized zone. And it depends on the round. The 4570 has a relatively modest powder charge. It would be somewhat less affected. If you take something like a 3006, uh, it would be more affected than a 308 because it's less efficient. Um, I had a uh, 760 uh, carbine, 16 inch barrel. With 3006, and boy, the flame that came out of the end of that gun was impressive, but that was all powder not being burned, so it would be more adversely affected. So it's not a hard rule, but it's a good guiding rule, and it will, it will hold very true for something like the 4570, which is a relatively inefficient cartridge, and therefore less affected by, um, shorter barrel lengths. About 10 feet per second per inch. Let's take this next one, because I think it's kind of cool, and you're making me want to buy this damn gun even more. 
Jack, could you please elaborate on using the Ruger 77357 as an all-around gun? Uh, certainly, I have no qualms about shooting deer with a 357 uh, rifle. What would be the, you know, maximum range for a full load? And then, you know, what's what kind of rule of thumb can I use to know what's the right load for the right game? Obviously, for a squirrel or a rabbit, you use the minimum load, but you know. How do you how do you scale it in between to know if you if you're at the appropriate range for the appropriate type of target? Thanks a lot. Bye. Well, first, thank you for the question because um, I've actually been giving this thing a lot of thought because you know when I when I look at this this rifle, I'm probably going to have to pay for for one. There's not a lot of used ones out there for. Uh, sale the, the retail on it's like a thousand bucks, but they're they're selling street price for six fifty to seven hundred. By the time I put rings on it, I'm gonna want a sling for it, etc. I already have all the reloading dies and everything for it, so and I have plenty of thirty eight and uh, three fifty seven brass uh, ammo loaded. I got all kinds of stuff for it, so, but still, I mean, it may be like eight hundred, nine hundred bucks because I'm gonna want to put like a, probably a mid grade four power mill dot type scope or something on it, and I'll talk about why I say that in just a minute. Um, so I've been thinking about this a lot. So here's what I've determined about. Let's start out with your first question as to, okay, we have like a really light load for small game, and then we have like a really heavy load for, for big to large game like deer. Uh, well, how do we figure out the middle? I don't think you have to. I, I don't think there's any reason to. And I'll, I'll, I'll give some hard numbers behind that here in a second. But I think what you do is you develop two loads. You develop the hottest load that makes sense for what you're doing, and that's for everything that needs that much killing. And then if you want to pop a rabbit or quietly get rid of a raccoon, I think the lightest load you can come up that will with that will work well, and I'll give you kind of where I think that starting point kind of is uh, here in just a second, but it's, you know, and, and you probably want to go a little higher and back down and see how things work. Uh, but if you do that, I think you're going to have something that's going to be incredibly lethal on, you know, a coyote at 50 yards, on a, a raccoon in your chicken house. Uh, and yet you can shoot a squirrel with a, in the head with it and it won't blow the damn thing apart. Or you can shoot a rabbit in the head with it and it won't blow the damn thing apart. In fact, you could probably shoot a rabbit behind the shoulder with it and not blow the damn thing apart because you're going to get, like, no expansion from a hard-cast lead bullet traveling at around 800-ish feet per second which I think is kind of your lower limit of having this thing work well for you. So that's that's it. Now, I'm thinking something like a fixed four power or possibly an affordable but good piece of glass, three to nine, maybe you'd go to that, but a light... So you don't want to take a five-and-a-half-pound rifle with an 18-inch barrel and put a big old honking scope on it that goes halfway down the barrel uh, so you can see way out there. This is really, okay, you can push this, okay? And you can definitely push it to 125, but it's really a 100-yard gun. That's the way to think of it. And 125 is a longer shot that's totally doable. And beyond that, you're starting to get to an area where you really got to know your gun really, really well. It's like, you know, it's like saying the 3006 is a 300-yard gun. Really, it's a 250-yard gun that you could easily shoot 300 yards with if you know your gun well and if you have the ability and that's kind of what you've, you've, you've kind of run yourself back to with this 357. For those that don't know, again, it's a bolt-action 357 Magnum rifle that also will fire 38 specials. Okay, So 
I've gone conservative with the muzzle velocities here because I've seen published hand load velocities exceeding 2,000 feet per second with 158 grain load, which is what I'm going to start out with to kind of give you some ideas about what the capabilities are here. And I have some stuff printed out because I have multiples of them. So let's start out with a 50-yard zero. If we, if we take... Uh, 158 grain standard 357 magnum load at muzzle velocities typical for an 18-inch rifle. And we zero at 50 yards, and that would be a muzzle velocity of 1,700 feet per second. Remember, I said I think we can go higher than that, but ballistic coefficient on these things is not that high, .206. It's a pretty flat, stubby-looking little thing. At 75 yards, we've dropped .6 inches, call it a half inch, and at 100 yards, we're down 2.2. Uh, that is flat enough to be minute of deer, out to 100 yards. At 125 yards, we're only down 4.9 inches or 5 inches, assuming that anytime you were out that far, you would hold a little higher on the vitals, not above, but on the vitals. You're still kind of minute of deer out to that range. You're within the shooter's margin of error, etc. I have no problem taking that shot. At 150 yards, you're 8.8 inches down. If we move our zero to 100 yard zero, We're only 2.2 down at 125, and we're 5.5 down at 150. If I was going to be pushing this gun much past 100 yards as a matter of decision, I'd probably do 100 yards zero. It's very flat with that. Uh, 25 yards, you're 2, 0.2 inches high. You're 1.1, one, one, so call it an inch high at both 50 and 75, dead zero at 100. That's a great, that's a great flat shooting round to 125 yards. That's absolutely minute of deer. Most people can't hold a two-inch group with a 357 Magnum rifle at 125 yards anyway. So your, your drop is within the group size. And that's, that's a point-blank shot out to 200, 125 yards. If I was confident in the gun, I would push that gun to 150 yards with a 100-yard zero and a 158-grain bullet. Though I don't know that's what I would settle on as my big game round. I'd, I'd have to do some testing and performance testing on how the, the, the slug performed. I'm going to give you 180, degree, 180 grain information here in a second. At 175 yards, you've dropped 10 inches, and at 200 yards, you've dropped 16. I think you're pushing... It's not that it's not doable. It's not that it wouldn't be lethal if it hits the right point, but I think like if you want to shoot 200 yards, get a different round. Get a different round. Um, muzzle energy. Out to that 150 yards, you're still clocking along at 566 pounds of muzzle energy, and your muzzle velocity is 1,270 feet per second. It's damn lethal, and let me again make my, my point with this, uh, to where any argument that it's not is completely invalid. Uh, Crossman slash Benjamin Rogue is a 357 uh, air rifle. I think they changed the name, but it's still basically the same performance. Uh, it pushes 158 grain piece of lead at about 800 feet per second out of the barrel. And it's been used to shoot red hardy beasts in Africa and successfully just knock the shit out of them. Um, so at 125 yards, um, this thing's still clocking along at 1,300 feet per second. That's 500 feet per second over what this air rifle does that plumb lays waste to hardy beasts, which are an animal that would be right in between your biggest whitetail and your average bull elk. Kind of right in between that. That's a big animal, uh, and that was, I think, an 80-yard shot that guy made. Uh, they've shot wildebeest with them, too, at you know, 70, 80 yards. That's another big animal. Your argument, if you didn't, don't think this is a lethal round to big game, is, is just moot. It's irrelevant. It's, it's, it's pointless. 
And I ran this table out to 250 yards. At 250 yards, that particular round is still clocking 1,084 feet per second. So your variable becomes being able to consistently hit your target with respect to do the animal. Again, I say this is a 150-yard round max with a responsible shooter only taking a shot beyond 100 yards because the circumstances are ideal and you can't get any closer. And you, you see this is a 100 to 125-yard round for big game. If that is the case, there is no benefit to using a 158-grain slug unless the ballistics in the field change this opinion of mine at this point. There's no benefit to using 158-grain slug if you don't intend to shoot it beyond 125 yards. So if we take a 180-grain uh, Hornady XTP, which has a much higher sectional density and a somewhat higher ballistic coefficient because it's longer, like a dart, right? Um, and we zero that at 100 yards, we are only down 3 inches at 125 and we only rise above the line of sight 1.7 inches at 50 yards. So we are still dead on out to 125 yards. Yeah, now now we have a round that can do an awful lot for us, and I would not hesitate to put that round into an elk at a range of 100 yards. And I'm telling you, it's damn lethal. And again, what we've seen the 357 air rifles do, make any argument that it's not irrelevant. Your argument is invalid. Okay, now, let's turn to the other side. I think about the bottom end for accuracy with this is a probably a 158-grain um, hard-cast lead round nose and uh, probably a muzzle velocity. Somewhere around 900 feet per second would be a good target to start for. You can go way below that with handguns, and there's no real good data out there that I can find for 38 special loads in a rifle um, as to what the muzzle velocity is. But if you go to some of your lighter loads in 38 special, my guess is your muzzle velocity is between 800 and 900 feet per second. If we zero that at 25 yards, we're down 1.3 inches at 50 yards. And I think that's about right for small game with this. I don't think this is your 100-yard small game squirrel sniping tool. This is... Your lower velocities are about 50 yards out. If we if we increase our um, zero further out, we push our zero out to 50 yards, here's what happens. We end up about 7 tenths of an inch high at 25 yards, dead on at 50. That works, too. That works, too. But my experience has been as you download things like this, like my, my really low-velocity 44 Magnum loads and, and what have you, your accuracy gets gets kind of crappy past about 25 to 35 yards. Your groups really open up because you're going so low for the round. It's a short-distance round. So you may be better off being pinpoint on at 25 yards, and that's a small-game stalking range. Now, here's what I think is awesome. If you use a mil-dot rectangle, which these are generally for shooting longer distances. So what this means is you think of the crosshairs of the scope, you have a place where they cross. That's where your zero is. And then you have little dots that go up, down, left, and right. And these are minutes of angle. And that lets you know if I'm X distance past the target, this specific dot becomes my, tar my, my, my zero. It is very conceivable that one could then zero this little Ruger uh, 77 
with a 100-yard zero on your chosen big game round and then just go shoot it at 25 yards with your 38 specials and determine which dot to use. And then your, 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 your dots on your horizontal are for windage, and you have to estimate with those. And I think what you would have then is a gun that you could just pick up, and if you, if you threw in a, a 38 special round that you had loaded, lo, downloaded for your small game usage, you just know what, at 25 yards, you just put the right dot on it, bam, dead. And I think that's the way to go. I think trying to come up with a bunch of crap in the middle doesn't really make any sense. Because if I'm shooting a coyote, I don't care if I'm using a heavy round. I only really need the low round for small game I don't want to damage or because I want to be quiet in like my area. I don't want to go out in the middle of the night with a 12-gauge or a 30-06 and shoot a raccoon. I want pap. Well, the distance I'm going to do that at around here, 25 yards or less. Flashlight, gleam, you know, the eyes are shining in the scope, and bam, you're done. You're done, you could probably go out. And again, that, that 38 special round coming out at 800 to 900 feet per second is now equivalent to that Benjamin Rogue, or whatever the hell they call it now, that air rifle. So think about this. If you can download to about 700 to 800 feet per second, You have a firearm that performs exactly like a lot of the 357 air rifles and yet can become a big game rifle by swipping out your cartridge. And if you have a scope with mill dot and you know how to dope it just by memory because you got one that's spot on and one that you compensate for, you never have to fool with your scope or sights ever again. And if you were out hunting and you saw a rabbit or something you wanted to take, and you were loaded up for deer, and you're like, I'm not going to get a deer today, you could slide, just real quietly open it, don't chamber a new round, slide that little round in there, you know, drop the magazine or whatever, slide it back in, and pap. By the way, you probably won't scare anything away. You might see a deer later anyway, because the, the, the report of that is going to be quieter than that than if you had a .357 with a, with a, uh, with a suppressor on it. That's why I love this thing. I'm going to have to buy one. I'm convincing myself and probably some of you right now to get one. So I went long enough, but I can't tell. I've, I've dug into the meat of this. I've dug into the meat of this. And uh, shooting my son's NEF H&R handy rifle with 357 Magnum was always a blast. And every time we've shot something with that, with that, that rifle, we've shot some exotic rams, we've shot some wild boar, uh, I've shot a couple deer with it, they just die. And as I keep saying... In so many different contexts, death does not come in degrees. And the problem with the really hypervelocity heavy magnums and stuff is they ruin meat. Let's take one more and we'll finish for the day. Hi, Jack. This is Brad from Nebraska. Hey, I heard a, uh, a statement from Michael Bain uh, who writes, who's part of the Outdoor Channel. And it was very insightful, just kind of a deep thought. He said, if he's talking about the, you know, the holiday we just celebrated last weekend, he said, Citizens celebrate Independence Day. Subjects celebrate the 4th of July. How did you celebrate it? I thought it was pretty insightful. It might give good food for thought. Keep up the good work, and we'll catch you later. I almost passed on this because when I came back on Tuesday following the 4th of July, Independence Day, you know, whichever one you want to call it, I, uh, I kind of covered this, and I kind of made the same points, but... 
it's it's given me the opportunity now to visit it from a different standpoint. So I do think we should be selling celebrating Independence Day, and we should be using the word Independence Day. But as I said when I covered this last week, it, we don't really have independence anymore. I mean, our nation may be independent from other nations, but our citizens are not independent citizens, right? We are more like subjects, and that's a problem. But it's not just the government's problem. So I'd like to give you an analogy and tell me what you would do if you were this parent. Imagine you are the parent of a 19-year-old young man. He's 19, but he still lives at home. He does not have a job. He does not have a productive bone in his body to getting shit done. He's ill-informed. He's lazy. He's still living off you. But when you give him a rule in order for him to continue to exist in your home, he says, I'm a grown-up now. You are not allowed to tell me what to do. You are not the boss of me. I am independent. I can do whatever I want, and you can't stop me. And let's imagine in this world you are not capable of grabbing him by the scruff of his neck showing him the door and saying, when you figure shit out, let me know. I'll always be your parent. I'll always be here to help you. I'll always do what I can. But if that is your attitude and you're not living up to it, go your ass out there and become independent and letting life teach him to do so. Imagine you had no choice but to let him remain in your home. How would you treat him? How would you treat him? And now imagine he's not your son. You don't love him. You don't care about him. It's some person that you've been saddled with. Somebody's basically put a metaphorical gun in your head and said, you will, you will house and care for this person. How would you treat them? Would you not get very strict with rules and say, listen, I will use whatever force is necessary to make you at least not screw everything up because you're incompetent, you're useless, you're living off of me. I'm providing for you. I'm having to take from other members of the household to provide for you because you're a sponge and I can't get rid of you. Now, <laughs> the only difference between that young man and all the people that it's making you think of in America living off of the dole, so to speak, is that unlike you, our country wasn't saddled with them. Our government created them on purpose as a means of control. But I think you would agree that if that was the type of... And imagine you had ten of them living in your home. Don't you think you would be draconian with them? And don't you think you'd get away with it because they don't have any other options? Now, let me give you a different scenario. You have someone living in your home, your son, your daughter, a person that you were forced to let in your home. I don't care which. This person is informed. They know all about the system. They know all about you. They know about how everything works. They are productive and they see to themselves. They provide themselves their own food, their own meals. They pay their own way. They don't get in the way. They don't mess things up. They know what's going on. And they know the limits of your authority. And they have respect for your authority, but they also know the limits and they will not let you go past it. How are you going to treat them? dramatically different. What if you wanted to be the draconian asshole that you had to be with the sponges, do you think you'd get away with it with the second party? No, you wouldn't. Okay. We're not independent as a citizenry of this nation because as a whole, we don't act like it. We don't deserve it. 
We don't deserve it. I know you deserve it. I deserve it. Many of us are pulling our weight. But if we look at the majority of people in this country today, they're ill-informed. They do only what they have to. They'll, they'll take any penny, any dime they can get from government. And they don't view it the way we do where it's like, you know what? I'll take all I can, I can get back because I've already busted my ass for it and you stole it from me. They don't, they'll, if they can do nothing, they'll do nothing. And they know nothing. When they hear something that matches their belief system, they believe it out of hand. And when they hear something that challenges their belief system, they write it off as propaganda of the other side. And it doesn't matter if they're on the left or right side of the equation, they behave the same way. That's why we don't have independence, because we have a monster that is government. And the monster has been unchained. And no one's even willing to think about putting chains on the monster or outright getting rid of it. Not enough people to be anyone. That's what I mean. 10% in a society of 300 million is not enough. It's not enough. Independence Day. My belief is, if you want independence, you have to declare it for yourself as an individual. You really do. Before we uh, listen to that closing song that will bring the monster home to us yet again, let me remind you, the best way to support this show is to become a member of the Survival Podcast Members Support Brigade. You can do that by going to the survivalpodcast.com, clicking on Members, and getting discounts to many, many things you're probably buying anyway. And you'll help support the show that you listen to every day at about 10, uh, 20 cents an episode. And if you're a military law enforcement Peace Corps or active, uh, or I'm sorry, or a first responder, uh, like an EMT or a paramedic or firefighter, email me before you join. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line and uh, tell me about your service and I will send you a discount code. Do that before, not after you join. I want to tell you a funny story. So yesterday I got a comment in the blog about my comments about martial law and Obama's third term and stuff. And it was more of this martial law stuff. And it was a little more palatable than the original question. And it was certainly more palatable than a, The, the, the Obama third term, Porter Stansbury crap has been going on for six years and all this other bullshit. Uh, but it was still, you know, there's, they're testing cities. Uh, they saw UN Jeeps or some shit. I, and I responded with, I'm sorry, I just shot myself in my head with my airsoft gun and I can't answer your question. And uh, the person was pretty miffed at me and said, this is why I didn't renew my MSB. Eh, whatever, man. I mean, I, I seriously feel that way. I do this show. To provide a service to the audience. And I have MSB to enable me to continue to provide that service. And I, I've set up MSB so you could hate me. And if you want stuff that's, that's in the survival preparedness realm and use my discounts, you still are better off for being a member than not. And if you don't want to be a member under those circumstances, because I tell you the truth when you don't like it, I don't need you as a member. I don't. And I won't make any apologies for telling you the truth and telling you when you're behaving irrationally and illogically, and you're worried about shit that ain't going to happen. And sometimes I'll do that with a little bit of slapstick humor. Like I shot myself in my head with the airsoft gun. You think I really did it? I didn't. I am thinking about keeping one of my airsoft guns around here, though, and when I get some of those questions, just going, well, I think, and let you hear the sound effect or something like that. Because, guys, the blue helmets are not coming. Martial law is not going to prevent the next presidential election. And the MSB is a good value, so consider joining because of the value alone and to support the show. And if you also want to support the show 
and you don't want to join the MSB or you already have and you're wondering what else you could do, do your Amazon shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Somebody asked in the, in the, in the uh, comments today, what is it? What is tspaz? You just go there. T-S-P-A-Z.com, enter. You show up on Amazon, do your Amazon shopping. That's it. That's all there is to it. But you'll see the item of the day. Item of the day is cool today. It's a tea infuser. You can look at the, you can, you can just put tea spaz in and see it. Or you can go to the blog and look up the post if you want to know about it. But this is the important thing. Remember I said, I'm trying to make my item of the day posts on the blog more important than just the item or even shopping on Amazon. I have a tea recipe that I've held on to. I developed it over a year ago. I was going to take a commercial and I was going to take it under the farm. I was going to take it our nine mile farms tea. And I've thought about it and I've decided it just isn't in the cards for us. There's other things we can do. And I'm just going to make this recipe and maybe some others in the future open source. That recipe is published in the blog post uh, for this item of the day. So if you go to the site and look up that tea infuser, just probably one uh, post below this one, you can get my recipe. I'm not going to give it on the air. And it is the only time I'm going to publish it, but it has now been published and it's referenced in the video and there's a link in the video and all that good stuff. It's our daily drinking tea. I'm drinking a cup of it right now. Um, the decaffeinated version or non-caffeinated version, I guess you should say, that substitutes blackberry leaf for green tea is what I've been drinking for weeks. And uh, other than occasionally on like when we go out or on a weekend or all, I haven't drank coffee in months. And I did that because I was drinking way too much coffee. Way too Coffee's not bad for you, but as much as I was drinking was. And uh, this tea is fantastic, and if you've been wanting to back off the coffee, it would be a good one. I also have an amazing tea for nighttime to put you the hell out asleep and have dreams like you wouldn't believe. I might give that one away in the future. Time will only tell. Anyway, tspaz.com, support the show. Uh, next up, make sure you check out our business directory. Remember, with that, you can uh, find people to do business with from the community, and you can be found so that others can do business with you. Today's supporter of the directory is Creative Country Designs. They provide photography and website design work. They offer also offer a line of handcrafted home decorations on Facebook. You can find their store by visiting the TSP directory. Of course, there's a link in the show notes today as well. So that brings us to our closing song of the day from... 1969! It's by Steppenwolf. It's called Monster. This song does not pump, paint an overly rosy picture of our founding and of our development and as our rise to a nation. Let me give you an example. Here is the first stanza. Once the religious, the hunted and weary, chasing the promise of freedom and hope, came to this country to build a new vision far from the reaches of kingdom and pope. Sounds pretty good so far. Here's the next two lines. Like good Christians, some would burn witches. Later, some got slaves to gather riches. So it acknowledges the good and bad. But still from near and far to seek America, they came by thousands to court the wild. But she just patiently smiled and bore a child to be their spirit and guiding and light. And once the ties with the crown had been broken... Westward in saddle and wagon it went, until the railroad linked ocean to ocean, many of the lives which had come to an end, while we bullied, stole, and bought our homeland, we began the slaughter of the red man. But still, from near and far to seek America, they came by the thousands to court the wild, but she just patiently smiled and bore a child to be their spirit and guiding light. 
The blue and gray, they stomped it. They kicked it just like a dog. And when the war was over, they suffered it. They, they stuffed it just like a hog. And though the past has its share of injustice, this is important, kind was the spirit in many a way. But its protectors and friends have been sleeping. Now it's a monster and will not obey. The spirit, it was freedom and justice, and its keepers seemed generous and kind. Its leaders were supposed to serve the country, but now they won't pay it no mind. Because the people grew fat and got lazy. Now their vote is a meaningless joke. They babble about law and order, but it's all just an echo of what they've been told. Yeah, there's a monster on the loose. It's got our heads in a noose. And it just sits there watching. Cities have turned to jungles and corruption is strangling the land. The police force is watching the people and the people just can't understand. We don't know how to mind our own business because the whole world's got to be just like us. Now we're fighting a war over there. No matter who's the winner, we can't pay the cost. America, where are you now? Don't you care about your sons and daughters? Don't you know we need you now? We can't fight against, we can't fight alone against the monster. And that repeats several times. America, where are you now? Don't you care about your sons and daughters? Don't you know we need you now? We can't fight alone against the monster. America is the spirit in this song. America is not the nation. America's not the government. America's the spirit. America's the spirit that even for all our flaws, for everything we did wrong, the overriding spirit was generous and kind and there was hope. There was hope. But still from near and far to seek America, they came by the thousands to court the wild. But she just patiently smiled and bore a child to be their spirit and guiding light. And when you listen to this song, I want you, when you hear that, that verse right there, that little chorus, but still and far, still from near and far to seek America, listen to how it sounds. It's written in 1969. It sounds dramatically like a song from, I think, 1987. Neil Diamond, Coming to America. You'll hear an echo. I almost think Neil lifted this and made a, a more happy version of it in the 80s to try to rekindle this, this, this spirit. I'm not saying he did. I'm just saying it kind of feels that way when you listen to this. And it's kind of harsh guitars and long riffs and stuff. I mean, remember, in 69, everybody was stoned. Right? This is actually a short version. The original song was like nine minutes. This is six. Okay. But listen to the words. That's why I gave them all to you, because you might not hear them all otherwise. Some of this old music, it's hard to know what the words are unless you know what the words are. So then you know what the words are. But, but, but we had something here. We were never perfect. There was always injustice in America, because there's always been injustice in the world. There's always been prejudice There's always been oppression, but we had a spirit. We had a spirit that there could be more, there could be better. 
And somewhere in the 1960s when we thought we were actually the, the, the flower children and the hippies and everybody was really taking it back, it actually made a turn for the worse, and it's only gotten worse. Tell me these words don't sound like today. Tell me they don't. The police are watching the people, and do you think that's just the cops on the street? Do you think the cop on the street is really the enemy or the police state that's watching the people? And our protectors and our friends of the spirit have been sleeping, and now the state is a monster that will not obey. And only the spirit, only the spirit can help us fight the monster. The spirit that was the ideal that was America. America, in the words of a speech I gave a long time ago, is not a place with borders and laws and government. America is an ideal that at one time had those ideals at least in some way protected by borders, law, and government. But now the borders are irrelevant. The law is directed at the people versus the criminal. And the government serves the interest of itself. And it's not that different than it was all the way back in 1969. They just are better at it today. It's only the spirit of independence in the individual and the spirit and willingness to band together that can change the tide. But today we have a monster and it will not obey. Think about that. And be willing to fight for your own freedom and independence because no one's going to do it for you. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Webster's a chair of injustice. Kind was the spirit in many a way. But its protectors and friends have been sleeping. Now it's a monster and will not obey. Yeah.